Welcome, everyone, to the Atlantic Council. I'm Barry Pavel. I'm the director of the Brent Scowcroft Center on um, International Security here. Yesterday, the council convened an off-the-record um, war game, as we call it, on the future of the U.S.-led coalition's um, operations and strategy against ISIS. Uh, this was the third and final installment of a series of war games on uh, this topic that were convened by our senior fellow for Middle East security in the Scowcraft Center, Bilal Saab, who will offer a few more details uh, immediately after my introductory remarks. This installment was conducted in partnership with the Washington Post. The, the war games in general have been aimed to inform policy decisions and planning decisions as events continue to develop. And the, the key goal, obviously, is how do we best confront this strategic challenge uh, presented by ISIS and related events in the region. In recent weeks, although, uh, as I said yesterday, this statement could be said at any time in the last year, but in recent weeks, we have been reminded that how developments on the ground can continue to uh, present new, new, um, new surprises and can have pretty far-reaching implications, both for global, regional, um, and more local um, circumstances, and, and that the scope of this challenge that we're discussing today is really is anything but local, even though initially that was the, the pundit's consensus. Um, Russia's entrance is the new big variable, but I'll probably be standing up here in front of you in about a month saying there's, a new, there's another new variable. Um, but this is a key one that, that will be durable, and I think we'll, uh, we'll be looking to, to center a good deal of the discussion on what does this mean for the strategy, what does it mean for ISIS, and for all of the uh, related questions that many, many of you know quite well. Uh, so it certainly has presented new complicating factors, and it, and it clearly is, is preventing uh, uh, more significant progress on the U.S. Uh, stated goal of degrading and ultimately destroying, destroying ISIS. Meanwhile, the refugee question also is obviously extraordinarily prominent. And they're a reminder of the, I think, uh, an important reminder of the human toll that the conflict has, has taken uh, in more, over more than four years, but also of the challenges that uh, the conflict continues to present. And in many ways, the, uh, one of the real um, negative implications of, of policy choices. I mean, we're seeing these play out um, on, a, on a daily and weekly basis. So. Um, Today's discussion also comes in the context of a, a, a broader body of work uh, in the think tank community in Washington and certainly at the Atlantic Council. At the Atlantic Council, there's a major and really interesting um, task force led by Steve Hadley and, and Madeleine Albright on Middle East strategy. And the purpose of that task force is to develop a framework for thinking about the region's challenges and opportunities. And I think this is really important, and certainly we in the Scowcroft Center think this is really important. If, if, you're, if you're responding to developments only with policy choices that are not linked to a longer-term strategy and, and hopefully a shared set of strategic objectives between the United States and its key allies and partners in the region, then you're not, you don't know whether those policy responses are going to help you achieve your goals or whether they will lead to further crisis management choices. Um, uh, Mr. Hadley, who spends a lot of time with us in the Scowcroft Center on strategy, says that if all you do is manage crises, 
all that will do is give you more crises to manage. You need to take a strategic viewpoint. And so we're really looking forward to the results of this um, uh, strategy effort. Uh, the next key event in that is a public event on October 22nd um, where the security uh, recommendations of that, of the strategy task force will be um, rolled out. So please mark that on your, on your calendars. And then the Scowcroft Center, we are also um, engaged in a body of work on Gulf security, uh, um, uh, a proposed U.S. approach to defense strategy in the Gulf was published earlier this year. We convened around um, uh, the Camp David Summit, both before and after, and we're continuing to track, to track that work. And then the South Asia Center, uh, Barbara Slavin, who's here, has done an enormous um, uh, body of work on Iran uh, over the years um, and led an Iran task force that the council's also continuing to, um, to follow up on. And so this, this is not a one-off event. It comes in the context both of developments in the region but also as part of the Council, uh, the Atlantic Council's uh, wide and longstanding work on these questions. And so I think with that, I will turn it to uh, Bilal Saab, who will offer some, of, some um, additional insights on this effort. Thank you. Uh, good morning, everybody, or good afternoon. Um, the ISIS uh, threat is effectively growing or the same, which is, I'm not sure what's the difference. Uh, if you don't think three simultaneous terrorist attacks in three different continents is a cause for alarm, uh, I'd say you take a look at the movements. Uh, expanding influence in areas like Saudi Arabia, um, Kuwait, um, I would say Yemen and uh, Libya and other places. And that means one thing and one thing only. Uh, we are due for a comprehensive review of the administration's strategy. I'll say that one more time. We are due for a comprehensive review of the administration's strategy against ISIS. Uh, we can continue to step up our kinetic efforts, uh, but the overall plan, to the extent that one is discernible, lacks clear strategic guidance. Uh, killing one bee at a time when you're dealing with a massive beehive is not exactly sound strategy. Uh, the president did admit in an interview on uh, July 7 that this is a long-term campaign. He made no hints, however, of reconsideration of the existing strategy, uh, and he did not make any hints of adjusting to existing grim realities. The United States needs to do that, and needs to do that immediately. So this is where our efforts at the uh, Scowcroft Center uh, come in, and Barry has mentioned that. Just yesterday, we uh, conducted the third uh, war game on ISIS, uh, where we looked at the issue much more strategically than we have done uh, thus far. The first two were a bit more operational tactical. This one was much more strategic, and we looked at it basically 10 years ahead, 2025. Where would we like to be in Iraq and Syria? Uh, in uh, 10 years from now, and of course, equally important, how can we get there using five-year strategies? Let me uh, provide some key takeaways, uh, and then uh, we'll invite the other co-panelists. Uh, the first one, I think, which is the most important, and it was not surprising at all, there was unanimous consensus that the main problem we're dealing with here is a systemic failure of uh, governance and lack of political legitimacy in the Arab world. This was, yes, a war game about ISIS, but not surprisingly, most of the discussion focused on the uh, futures of Syria and Iraq 
as countries and not so much on ISIS per se. You know, in many ways, the design of the war game, which is, like I said, more long-term, more strategic, uh, allowed this to happen, and that's exactly one of the objectives that I wanted uh, from that war game, for us to think a bit more proactively and stop thinking uh, and reacting to little things all the time. Um, we certainly did not disrespect the, uh, the group's military capabilities, and we didn't treat it as a footnote. Uh, but we all agreed that this was really a, a symptom of a much deeper problem, and unless we deal with that uh, deeper uh, underlying challenges, then we're not going to get very far as far as the, uh, the ISIS uh, uh, challenge. Uh, you start doing this, the right things in Iraq and Syria, and you effectively commit to helping end the civil wars in both countries, and we're going to have a chance to discuss that in length. And I bet you, you will start seeing instant uh, and much more significant progress in that campaign against the organization. So the three broad plans that we uh, discussed yesterday, which the United States could be pursuing in the next 10 years, uh, are as follows. You can stay the course. Pretty much you do whatever you've been doing uh, uh, until now. You can uh, get a little bit more serious with a diplomatic surge, so you focus much more on diplomacy to end uh, the civil wars, or you can adopt heavy military intervention. Uh, some participants yesterday called it heavier military intervention or military occupation, but uh, the point is that in many ways you up significantly the military effort uh, in both countries. Uh, we're not going to get into details right now how many troops, but there would definitely be a ground uh, troop component to it. Uh, as you can imagine, these are not distinctly, uh, 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 entirely distinct plans. There was. Uh, there's an effort by the participants yesterday, again, not surprising, to hybridize you know, some of these plans, especially the second one and the third one. Uh, and it's a matter of sequencing, right? Now, the, the way you get to uh, uh, successful diplomacy is by changing uh, events on the ground, by uh, uh, changing the military dynamics uh, in a way that would make them favorable to uh, um, achieve uh, diplomatic success. A lot of that was discussed yesterday. So we'll have a chance to uh, discuss that in today's um, discussion. Um, and I, I feel like that intent by the Obama administration to change the facts on the ground uh, has been there for a while, and it's the right intent. I think what we can all criticize and perhaps question is the commitment and uh, the way they've gone about executing that. So implementation has been quite uh, uh, lacking, not to use any other words. Uh, and, uh, and this is where significant prog progress needs to be made. Uh, we'll, uh, We'll have a chance to discuss that as well. Um, now, I mentioned that if you, if you commit to helping to end civil wars in Iraq and Syria, ISIS's power and influence will be dramatically reduced. Uh, so it will be a byproduct of that. Okay, well, that begs the question, how do you end the civil wars, right? It's not as, as, as easy as it sounds. Uh, let me start by saying that um, what, even though ISIS is trying to force us uh, to think about Iraq and Syria as one entity, and it's eliminated borders, uh, the reality is that these are two quite distinct problem sets that we're dealing with. Obviously, uh, Iraq poses a less significant challenge than Syria. Uh, Syria is way more profound, uh, and it is, I guess, less fixable in the near term than Iraq is. So having said that, that means that you have to have two distinct strategies uh, for both countries. There is not a single strategy for both. Um, now, we all know that the administration has adopted the Iraq first uh, approach, and perhaps Syria last, uh, and that in itself needs to change. A uh, couple of words about Syria, a couple of words about Iraq, and then I'll shut up. Uh, Syria, you can forget about peace uh, uh, or any solution sets in that country 
if um, we continue to fail to build a credible, uh, strong opposition force uh, on the ground that will be capable of um, uh, defeating or at least taking on effectively ISIS and uh, uh, regime forces. Uh, the discussion yesterday in many ways compared and contrasted the option of uh, backing a uh, proxy group that is currently operating in Syria. Uh, we're not going to name it, whoever it may be, but obviously the condition is that it would not have already um, killed Americans or committed to killing Americans. That would include Jabhat al-Nusra. Uh, the other option, which is far more effective but more difficult, uh, uh, as you can imagine, is actually creating an army. Uh, my good friend Ken Pollack wrote a good piece about that in Foreign Affairs. That army would be created outside the country. Uh, it would be credible enough and strong enough to take on both uh, foes. We can discuss and compare and contrast both uh, uh, options. Uh, General Martin Dempsey uh, just last month uh, had a quite a sensible plan and not outrageously ambitious about how you can actually create that kind of force. Um, that plan went nowhere. Uh, we could all have our theories why it hasn't been implemented. A uh, couple of words about Iraq and then I'll stop. Obviously, the challenge is much different. We do have a functioning government. Uh, it's not uh, uh, perfect. Uh, in many ways, it has many flaws, but we do have a government, unlike in Syria. Uh, the main challenge there is, um, and you know, Prime Minister Abadi has the right intent. He does want to reform the Iraqi uh, security forces. He wants to bring back the Sunnis to government. And uh, he's going to have to try to manage the, I would say, problematic relationship with Iran. And that's no easy task. Uh, he's a very, very busy man. Uh, he, like I said, he has the right intentions. Uh, but I would just question two things, or I would just focus very much on two things. The bureaucracy, which is not going to help him. Uh, the Iraqi bureaucracy has, has been quite uh, uh, you know, destroyed uh, during the uh, era of Saddam Hussein. And to rebuild it in a matter of uh, a few years is, is going to be quite uh, challenging. And then his own political strength. Okay, here this is someone who uh, his Shiite rivals are looking over his shoulders, uh, making sure that he would commit mistakes so they can replace him. Uh, that's not easy to operate in such an environment. And oh, by the way, he has to fight ISIS also. He has to create a, um, uh, a credible enough uh, uh, army that would also include Sunni recruits. That's no easy thing to do. Uh, the unification of Sunni Iraqis has to be done by the Sunnis themselves. But there are certain steps that the Prime Minister himself uh, should be doing, and this gets us back to the reforms, obviously uh, supported by uh, Ali Sistani, perhaps one of the most important Shiite religious figures today in the country. Uh, no easy task for the Prime Minister, but I think he is the right man for the job. Uh, that's my own opinion. We can debate that. Uh, and with that, um, let's go over the discussion. Thanks very much, Bilal. Um, and I want to turn to my uh, uh, very esteemed panelists in a second. Let me introduce them and first mention that there is, um, we are live on Twitter. So there is a hashtag, which is AC Mideast. And we're tweeting from uh, at AC Scowcroft. I'm at Barry Pavel. Um, and I'm going to introduce uh, the two panelists um, whom you haven't uh, heard from yet. To my immediate left is Mr. Hassan Hassan. He is associate fellow at Chatham House, a non-resident fellow at the Tahrir Institute for Middle East Policy, and of course, co-author of the New York Times best-selling book, um, ISIS, Inside the Army of Terror. He focuses on Syria, Iraq, and the Gulf states and studies Islamist, Salafist, and jihadist movements in the wider region. His writings have appeared pretty much everywhere. I won't go through the list. 
Um, next to him is Dr. Erin Simpson. She is Chief Executive Officer of Keras Associates. Uh, she previously directed all of Keras's classified research, but cannot tell you about it, uh, and did it for the defense and intelligence communities here. Prior to joining Keras, she served as the strategic advisor to ISAF's counter, counterinsurgency advisory and assistance team, where she regularly advised senior military commanders throughout Afghanistan on issues related to the campaign, strategic assessments, and illicit networks. So um, uh, both panelists have a lot of experience here. I was going to ask them to speak for five to seven minutes, uh, and I will use my new app, which administers electric shocks, uh, light ones, if they go over. Uh, but they'll start us off with five to seven minutes each, and then we'll engage in a conversation here, and then we'll open it up to you. And I think first I'll turn to, to Hassan for his initial thoughts. First of all, thank you for uh, having me here at uh, the Atlantic Council. Uh, I, during this time, I want to uh, highlight three trends that I think are very uh, critical and important for the, uh, the for the um, you know the air campaign that is uh, now uh, you know going on against uh, ISIS. Uh, the the, f the first one has to do with the uh, with with the question that we always hear uh, whether ISIS is a state, how it governs, and so on. And and that's important because it, it, like I said, it has uh, implications uh, for our uh, for the kinetic effort. Um, I think uh, in, in terms of statehood, uh, the statehood of ISIS uh, is, uh, is, over, uh, is actually uh, understated uh, usually. I think uh, ISIS's uh, statehood uh, project is more intrusive and invasive, uh, invasive and uh, pronounced than uh, even the, um, uh, the, 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 the ones by the Iraqi and the uh, Syrian regimes uh, that you know, uh, preceded them. Uh, and I explain how. Um, one, I think, one, one good example is uh, is how ISIS deals with the tribes, and you know we we know that uh, all the areas controlled by ISIS, on, almost 99% uh, of the of the t terrain uh, that's uh, controlled by ISIS is tribal, is tribal uh, dominated, even. Uh, you know, including in uh, the areas that, uh, that are very close to Damascus, which is counterintuitive. People think that Damascus is an urban uh, uh, area, which is, it is, but the, uh, uh, the, the area that's controlled by ISIS there, which is Hajar Aswad, uh, the people who joined ISIS in there come from one tribe. Uh, or dominated, uh, like, the, the, you know, uh, uh, like predominantly from one, one tribe. Uh, so I'll explain how uh, I, uh, the, both the Assad regime and uh, the uh, you know the governments in Iraq, uh, whether during Saddam Hussein or under the current you know uh, current system, uh, dealt with tribes as intermediaries between uh, them and the local population. ISIS uh, comes in and it deals with tribes not as intermediary, but uh, it deals uh, with the organization itself as in, it deals with itself as an intermediary between tribes. It divides them, it plays them out uh, against each other, but also uh, resolves uh, their disputes, uh, goes out and, uh, you know, there are, there are, there are multiple uh, examples of uh, ISIS uh, getting members of, tri of two tribes that had, you know, long-standing uh, disputes and resolve them. Uh, because it, it thinks that that will uh, get people uh, more, uh, like, closer to it as, a, as a, like an actor, as a social uh, uh, intermediary. Or mediator, uh, and you know, uh, I could I could go on about that, but th there's no time. Uh, and um, uh, uh, 
you know, with regards to this issue, this particular issue, I predict that in say five years, uh, uh, there will be uh, the there will be a rise of local members of ISIS that will influence and reshape the, the organization. Uh, currently, uh, it's dominated by foreign fighters, of course, by uh, the leadership by Iraqis, but the foreign fighters play a, a big role in the in the military effort. But in five years, you will see um, you will see a different dynamic. Uh, the second. Uh, Can I just stop you real quick on that point because I have to ask. So you are, you think that ISIS's chances of survival and even continuing on as an effective network, to for for five years at least, is is relatively assured. Absolutely, I think uh, I have no doubt that ISIS will stay at least for a decade, uh, not uh, not only as a group that exists somewhere, but as a group that controls the terrain, uh, most of the uh, terrain that it currently uh, controls, and even probably wider in the region. Uh, but you know, so the second trend that I wanted mm -hmm. to mention is the is is what military officials call uh, de uh, deputization. Uh, what ISIS does basically is to delegate, and this is a, a remarkable trend that people really should. Uh, you know, focus on and try to get as much information about it as possible. Uh, in, especially in Iraq and s uh, to a certain degree in Syria, it started to delegate some of the powers that it has, some of the responsibility to locals, uh, lo especially local tribes that uh, have established themselves as loyalists to the group uh, without being at the, like, uh, within the core uh, kind of, uh, uh, you know, membership of the, of the organization. And, and this is a dangerous uh, trend because uh, ISIS has, um, uh, has started to build links and uh, deep-rooted uh, uh, kind of uh, you know association with with the with the locals, and that's uh, that's important. Also related to the first one uh, about tribes and how it deals with tribes. The third one uh, ha has more to do with the uh, directly with the impact of the uh, current air campaign against ISIS. Um, We've seen today, I think, or yesterday, a report, a fascinating report by Financial Times saying that ISIS still earns 1.5 million a day, a million dollars a day, from oil uh, alone. Uh, so uh, that calls into question about the impact of the air campaign that is targeting um, the financial roots of ISIS. Uh, now, it's not only uh, not effective, but also is counter-effective, uh, counter-counter-productive uh, when it comes to the local population. Because uh, I have noticed a trend as well uh, that more people are now joining ISIS because they have no other choice but to join the group. Uh, and uh, you know, everyone uh, from uh, communities living under ISIS would say that there is a general suspicion against ISIS. The people uh, suspect it, people don't trust it, people fear it, and they, they always deal with it as a temporary uh, kind of uh, uh, ruler, let's say, of, the, of their uh, areas. But at the same time, uh, families, desperate families, have started to allow their sons to join ISIS because uh, because of two things. The first one is that the airstrikes have disrupted a wartime economy that was functioning before ISIS came. Uh, and people, you know, uh, would, uh, you know uh, one of the family members would go and uh, uh, work in oil, for example. Uh, the oil, because it's cheap, uh, people could uh, operate their uh, heavy vehicles or, um, you know, engines that uh, pump water from the Euphrates River or the Tigris River, Tigris River to uh, far land. Uh, you know, agricultural uh, lands. 
because of the airstrikes and because the airstrikes have disrupted this economy, people have no other choice. And I notice that families do two things, or either of two things. The first one is either get their sons to join ISIS or send their sons overseas to Europe as, as refugees. So either join the refugee army or ISIS army. So, or both. Um, uh, depends if they want to, uh, you know, uh, benefit from uh, uh, both things. So um, with that, I just want to warn against uh, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, uh, hyper uh, kind of headlines about ISIS and how ISIS is actually uh, being defeated. I think uh, ISIS is still expanding in some areas, but the majority of its effort is focused on uh, the other uh, segment of its slogan, which is to remain and to expand, which is to remain, and I think it's focused on entrenchment of its uh, uh, rule and, and its areas. Thank you. Thank you. That's very important. So in some ways, you know, the headlines, and especially in Washington, are about the military operations and uh, the dramatic sort of hard power uh, dimensions to this. But what you're telling us is that while we've been focused on these, these headlines, ISIS has been consolidating its main sources of power and sustainability in, in, through governance and through um, uh, softer power, for want of a better word, approaches to, uh, to sustaining its network. Absolutely. Uh, you know, we've seen examples of people, uh, people saying that a lot of members are disillusioned with ISIS because they came and uh, they couldn't, uh, you know, they, couldn't, they didn't find the, the right or the life that they were promised. The fact of the matter is ISIS provides, and the most important product of ISIS is security. Uh, and I heard it from many people who don't like ISIS, uh, you know, from my area, from uh, other areas, is that, uh, you know, regardless of ISIS is, uh, if you avoid uh, getting in trouble with ISIS, then ISIS provides uh, something that we want, which is security. Uh, people no longer get uh, kidnapped or killed randomly. Uh, you, you could go on with your life. There's safety, there's security. And that's very essential. That's very important. But ISIS security is like mob security, right? The people who are going to kidnap and kill you are ISIS. So yeah, if you sign up for their yeah. particular insurance plan, right? But it's a regulated <laughs> kind of uh, regulated violence. Uh, uh, you know, you could have some psychological control over whether you could, you know, you wake up in the morning and you go to the market, you know you're not going to be killed unless you mess, you know, like you do something wrong. Uh, before that, you need to have a gun, uh, and if you get an, into, into a minor fight with someone, you, you might be killed. Okay. Well, well we're definitely going to want to come back to this underappreciated element of, of, um, of, of the phenomenon of ISIS. I want to turn to Dr. Simpson now, who's started her remarks. But well, we'd like you to uh, offer some of your broad thoughts on, would, on these questions. We can come back to this question because I think it's an interesting one, um, which is a, a, a distinction between tolerance and, and popularity. Um, providing security is an interesting way of uh, establishing control and establishing this, this psychological certainty, which I agree is very important um, and is really different from popularity or legitimacy. Uh, one of the things I think over the last month or so as the sort of Russian campaign has emerged uh, in, in Syria, um, is that it's brought this discussion of ISIS back to Syria from what has for most of the last year and a half been an Iraq discussion on, on the U.S. side in, in particular. Um, and not only does it bring it back to Syria, uh, it brings it back to the Syrian civil war, and in particular this question of Assad. Uh, so in many ways the, the U.S. strategy, uh, as Dan Chu mentioned yesterday, um, you know, has been a counterterrorism strategy characterized by counterterror strikes against ISIS uh, as an organization, whether the financial, you know, the, the oil fields uh, or against key leadership. Uh, it's also been an Iraq first strategy, right? We're going to do 
build our partnership capacity, build up the Iraqi army, recapture uh, Mosul, which the clock is still ticking on, um, and sort of build up that side, and we would see sort of what would happen in, in Syria um, for a variety of reasons, all of which have to do with more or less facts on the ground. I think that we're forced to relook the the Syria piece. We didn't feel like we felt like we had a lot of good options in terms of Syria policy, uh, so we sort of punted on creating very many good ones. Um, I don't think we have that luxury uh, any longer, neither diplomatically nor militarily. Um, that's actually, I think, from an analytic perspective, very important because the Syrian civil war, in many ways, was always the sucking chest wound that was going to long-term cause these, continue to cause these problems. And so a counter-terror campaign against ISIS that didn't resolve or remediate any elements of the Syrian civil war wasn't going to get you very far in, in the long term. The Syrian civil war is, as it has been from the beginning, about Assad and about the legitimacy of the, of the Assad regime and you know, how the Syrian rebels of various stripes want to, to deal with that. Um, I think one of the things that's an interesting part of that discussion um, you know, once you start talking about the Syrian civil war, you start talking about conflict dynamics on the ground, you start talking about political processes and political resolution, you also have to start talking about Jabhat al-Nusra, right, which is an incredibly effective military fighting force, also an incredibly effective governing force, particularly in Idlib, but also elsewhere. Um, and they're not the, you know, ISIS isn't the only one who's providing security to gain legitimacy at the hands of an otherwise incredibly unpopular ideology. Um, and that is a really difficult political space to look at in terms of civil war settlement or a broad scale political process. Um, I do think though that that shift back to what do we wanna do about Assad? What do the Syrians want done with Assad? Uh, what are the reputable players who should be at a table having that discussion amongst Syrians themselves um, is the place where the conversation should have been for the last long while and has returned to once again. And so hopefully we can have part of that discussion here again today. Bilal, did you have any additional thoughts before I start? Um, no, it's, it's a broad point. I think that um, the adjustments and the changes that I mentioned that need to be done to um, wage a more effective campaign against ISIS require some acceptance by this White House of political risk and commitment to providing a number of resources. Um, and I'm not sure that the administration is willing to do any of that. Yeah. One of the things that I take away a lot from war games or strategic path games, as they're now euphemistically called. Um, but this was at the strategic level. It's sort of a, a, a greater degree of insight into how um, you know, an adversary that's often characterized in caricatures in the media you know, might act and think strategically. And, and I'll just give you a couple of, it was a non-attribution war game, but a couple of insights or, or thoughts from the, the um, group playing the, uh, the red team in this case really struck me. I mean, uh, one of the key planks of their approach uh, to succeeding going forward was, we like Russia in Syria. We're going to target Russia. And they're not just targeting Russia for sensationalistic reasons, but they think that by doing so, they can increase recruiting from uh, Russia and its surrounding, uh, and surrounding countries. So they're really looking at the Russian deployment as a strategic opportunity. And you, can, you know the types of things they will do using social media and other means to capitalize on that opportunity. Another thing that came out from the, um, uh, of the discussion yesterday was they want to drive a wedge between the United States and Turkey. They want to keep those countries on separate paths. 
Um, they, wanna, uh, uh, um, they would love to conduct attacks in Turkey and leave a Kurdish calling card um, for reasons that are obvious to many of you. But I think this really gives us some insights. I mean, you know, from the vantage point of Washington, we often look at these and think about these, these, these conflicts and questions from a US-centric point of view. And we, it's sort of, sort of what can we do to or with um, our allies and partners in the region. But I think, you know, as the Pentagon likes to say, the enemy gets a vote. And uh, we need to be thinking in a time-phased uh, sort of um, uh, interactive fashion about next steps by a very adaptive and agile um, adversary. And so those were two insights. But I'd love to, to um, turn to my panelists to offer any other thoughts on how do they think, how do they, where do they think ISIS is going to go moving forward, not just consolidating its gains in terms of governance and economy, but what else might ISIS do in light of the current situation today and how things might play out? Well, you know, ISIS has been doing uh, stuff despite the, air, uh, the airstrikes. Uh, we've, seen, uh, we've seen them uh, taking over uh, two very important uh, cities, Palmyra, uh, and Palmyra because they could move uh, from Palmyra uh, into uh, Homs, uh, but more importantly into the uh, southern Syria, where they could actually establish a, a presence that they couldn't establish because uh, of the rebel forces uh, more than the government, because the rebel forces controlled that terrain or controlled uh, that terrain for a while, and they resisted uh, the existence of ISIS in, in their uh, territories because it's an existential threat for them. Uh, and the second city, which is uh, I think its most important uh, gain uh, since Mosul, which is Ramadi, uh, for uh, many reasons. The most important one of them is uh, is the fact that Ramadi represented the anti-ISIS Sunni resistance. Uh, for many years, since 2006. Uh, and the fact that they could actually uh, uh, topple the forces there, the Sunni forces there, and take control of that city is huge. It's basically killing that, uh, that potential for anti-ISIS uh, uh, Sunni resistance. Uh, the remaining city that represents a similar dynamic to, uh, uh, you know, uh, as uh, Ramadi is Haditha, uh, which is ISIS trying to get, uh, to get but there's still resistance. Uh, and that resistance has been going on since uh, ISIS took Mosul last, uh, last year. Um, so uh, these are very important gains despite the airstrikes, despite the fact that there's an Iraq first strategy they took Ramadi. Uh, so that tells us how uh, you know, ISIS is expanding still. Although, like I said, I think uh, uh, the majority of its effort is focused on console, uh, on like entrenchment of its uh, existence in its areas. Um, the, the, the second probably aspect of what ISIS will go from here, or you know, where it will go from here, is the, uh, I think it will focus on reigniting, like we said yesterday in the, in the sessions, uh, the civil war in Syria. I think they will uh, try to do this because Syria has uh, proven to be a very important uh, asset for ISIS, uh, in terms of, like as an environment, but also as a, as a gateway from, your, uh, from Turkey into Iraq and Syria for foreign fighters and so on. So the fact uh, or the, the idea that the, uh, the civil war uh, uh, would end uh, will cause uh, ISIS to kind of uh, worry. Uh, so they will focus on reigniting and uh, getting the Russians to be more invo uh, involved in Syria. Uh, the, the intuitive thing to say um, uh, to say is, is like don't provoke the bear, uh, the Russian bear. Don't provoke uh, the Russians because uh, you know what the Russians will do to you. The fact of the matter is ISIS will not hesitate to provoke the Russians. 
to get them more involved, uh, to get them, uh, like we, 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 we raised a question yesterday, whether if ISIS captures a, um, a Russian pilot, would it uh, burn the Russian pilot just like it did with the Jordanian pilot? And, uh, you know, we, uh, some people hesitate, say maybe not, uh, because, you know, they don't, you know, they wouldn't want to provoke the, uh, uh, the Russians. But I have no doubt that ISIS would do it because it represents, even if it cost them uh, Raqqa, even if it cost them maybe another city, uh, it will uh, get them to gain a lot uh, internationally because uh, that would be a symbolic thing for all people who share that mindset, uh, jihadi mindset. Uh, people will flock into ISIS areas because ISIS actually achieved something that they all wanted, uh, want. Thank you. <coughs> Bilal? Yeah, I mean, survival obviously will be the key priority for this organization and um, they'll take as much as they can but I, I, I have to disagree with um, Hassan's assessment that they we're going to have this organization with us for the next decade. I think that there are some serious limitations to the limits, uh, to, limitations to the expansion that they can actually uh, achieve because of demographics and sectarian dynamics in the, in the region. Um, as if the ISIS story is not depressing enough, let me in inject a little bit more pessimism to it. Uh, by saying the following. In an ideal scenario where they are actually defeated, and by that I mean they do not control a significant amount of territory and do not, they do not have a semblance of a state. Even in that ideal scenario, if they go underground, something I wrote about two or three years ago, I'm not sure that that's the best piece of news for counter-terrorism uh, counter agencies uh, because there's a lot of them. It's that simple. There's a lot of people in that organization that will go yeah, underground. A lot of people underground. That's the definition of being underground, right? There you go. Well, I mean, if I can't see them, I'm much more worried about them than they are if they are above ground. There's 50,000 of them. You'll see them. Uh, if they do transform into a terrorist model, something like Al-Qaeda, I'm definitely going to be worried about that. There's a huge foreign fighter component in it. And so what we had in Al-Qaeda you might want to double, triple that if ISIS were to transform actually into a purely terrorist model if they, do, if they go underground. So even in the ideal scenario where they are defeated, but they, uh, uh, we can no longer see them and they want to turn into this transnational jihadist uh, actor, I'm not sure that's good news either, for Western societies at least. Sorry, I'm a bit uh, confused. Are you pessimistic about their prospects? Do you think they'll survive for a while in light of so the strengths you're ask. highlighting, or do you think they're not going to be It depends who you ask. For people in the region, this is obviously, for a number of countries, an existential threat, right? And I would even include Saudi Arabia for it. Uh, but, but for Western societies, the, obviously, the key priority has always been to limit, if not completely eliminate, the terrorist potential uh, to the homeland, to other uh, European capitals. Uh, so it depends who you really ask. And I'm not sure which one would you prioritize sitting here in Washington. I would bet that is the transnational terrorist threat and not the threat that they pose to regional partners. I think that one thing that's interesting about I mean, this, this sort of discussion that, that Hassan brings up about the consolidation versus expansion um, instincts um, or, or prerogatives of, of ISIS, uh, two of my analysts, uh, Yasser Abbas and Dan Trombley, and their old boss, Jermana Kador, is here uh, with us here today as well, um, wrote a great um, piece of analysis sort of looking at the political economy of, of ISIS. Mm -hmm. I take issue with this uh, Financial Times report about $1.5 from oil a day, you know, 
Oil from Western Syria trades for $10 a barrel. I don't know how they're getting 1.5 million a day out, out of that. Um, the ISIS economy in many ways requires uh, sort of captured spoils from new territories. Uh, I mean, it's a raiding economy in a lot of instances. Uh, certainly it was you know, through early parts of, of this year. They maybe they're settling down, they're trying to work out the governance and taxation they're, they're, piece of it. They're still making a lot of money, right? Uh, I think the American raid in Deir Zor recently uh, discovered that uh, the initial expectations that ISIS uh, financial routes were disrupted uh, were overstated. Uh, that the fact that the ISIS was still making more than uh, the, uh, official estimates uh, made. made up. But I think they're making a good deal of that money through expansion, not just through oil in mm -hmm. the existing, you know, Raqqa and, and Deir Zor. I, I think in terms of expansion, uh, they stopped. Um, uh, Making gain, like financial gains uh, from two important uh, sources. The first one is weapon, weapons seized by, from their enemies, from the Iraqi government, the Syrian government, or the rebel forces, because this, the, the, the American-led uh, airstrikes have contained them uh, militarily. They've been successful in that sense. Uh, so they no longer uh, are. They're no longer in Diyala and uh, Kurdish areas or in uh, in rebel-held areas. Um, and, and the second one is basically that the, the, you know, the, the confiscation from new territories and making, uh, you know, uh, making gains from, uh, uh, from new lands and stuff like that. Uh, but they are still making a lot of money uh, from the local population, uh, the taxes, uh, oil, uh, maybe uh, like, you know, uh, less, less oil, but more. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Um, <coughs> Both of you mentioned Russia. I mean, obviously, we cannot game Syria anymore without taking into uh, account what Russian motives and what Russian uh, designs are in the country. Uh, so if there's one thing that they have accomplished, we can no longer think about the future of the country without Russia. Not that we could before, but now it's pretty clear, uh, given the uh, military commitment and, and the fact that they have uh, sent a very clear message to Washington that uh, you have to talk to us uh, uh, regarding the future of the country. So. I think a key question here, there's been a lot of commentary recently about it, is, is the main man in Damascus expendable for the Russians and the Iranians? Under the right set of circumstances, is this someone that they can give up on uh, uh, to uh, move the process forward and to uh, uh, try to solve this crisis? I don't have the answer to that. I think that a lot of people are trying to see the gap or the tension between the Russians and the Iranians on how they feel about uh, Assad himself. Okay, so I have my theory on how the Russians would view uh, uh, the, uh, the, um, the importance of Assad and how uh, the Iranians would. I think that the Iranians, in a heartbeat, would give up on the men. I, I, I've, not that I have talked to a huge sample of Iranians, but a few. I just returned from Lebanon where I had a nice chat with a high-ranked Hezbollah official. This is someone they can give up on very easily. Okay, but again, under the right set of circumstances. It might be the same with Russia. A lot of people in this room, I'm sure, know much more about Russia than I do. But the main way prism the Russians have been uh, looking at Syria is, is quite interesting in terms of how they view stability in the region, but overall in, in the world. Stability for them, um, and what happens in Syria for them has repercussions not just in the region, but also in their own country. They view stability through the prism of a strong man. And I think that until there's a clear alternative of another strong man in Syria, they will hang on very dearly to Assad. I think the Iranians might have different machinations and different uh, designs on how to bring about someone from the Alawite community to replace him. As I mentioned yesterday, not too long ago, two, three years ago probably, there was a consideration of a man uh, 
who was the son of the former defense minister, uh, Manaf Tlas. That went nowhere, obviously. Um, but I think, I, I think that the, the, the key difference between the Russian mindset and the Iranian mindset on what stability constitutes in Syria is quite interesting. Uh, uh, it, it is almost summarized in the Russian mindset in one strong man, because if that changes, it could have repercussions not just in the region, but also probably in Russia you know, in the long term. So they do not want to create a precedent where a dictator is easily removed, and then someone else, someone else, someone else comes in. Interesting. The American mindset is very different. I mean, I think we've learned quite a lot from the Arab uprising. Uh, we did have that mindset before, but with the Arab uprising and uh, the theory that a strong man could achieve stability and now completely bogus, I think that the United States is slowly but surely adopting a much more progressive understanding of stability, which you have written about, Barry, which is much more dynamic. Now, whether we get there, that's a different question. Ha Hassan, Aaron, any yeah. comments on the Russia factor? I think, uh, in theory, uh, both the Iranians and the Russians uh, think that uh, Assad is expendable. Uh, but practically speaking, if you're, uh, you know, on the ground and, uh, you, know, uh, you know, like the regime kind of dynamics, interdynamics, uh, I think it's very hard to imagine that Assad would go and the regime would stay together. Uh, there, there is a lot of tension. There's a lot of, you know, uh, Assad is not, uh, is not just a president. He's a symbol of the old order. Mm -hmm. right. If he goes... You know, how, how to keep these people together. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. And I, I think, you know, uh, even if Russia would, would tell you uh, we're willing to give up on Assad uh, under the right set of circumstances, or the Iranians say that, uh, I think practically, uh, practically speaking, it's, uh, it's hard to imagine that. I think the Russians have a pretty complex set of interests and are playing their own domestic and European game in a setting that happens to be Syria. Uh, so, I, you know, we've, we've done a pretty bad job anticipating what their actions and motivations have been over the last three weeks. I would hesitate to speculate, mm -hmm. you know, further uh, on, on that front. Um, you know, other than to say, I don't think that they went into Syria from a position of strength. I don't think they went into Syria because Assad was doing great. Um, they also didn't go in in 2012. If it's, you know, the strong man is so important, they were willing to let him leave him out on a, on a, you know, string for quite some time, twisting in the wind. So, you know, there, there's a lot of uh, dynamics. I do think it's important to note, as, as Bilal does, um, this asymmetry of interest or this, this, this gap of interest between the, the Russians and the Iranians. They happen to back the same individual, um, but with some different underlying motivations, I think. I'm going to ask a couple more questions, but uh, then turn to the audience to open this discussion up. And the questions are about, okay, so. We've talked quite a bit about uh, the dynamics of what's going on in Syria and the wider region and ISIS's um, potential paths going forward. What can we do about it? What can the international community, uh, how can we resolve this? This is one of those cases where uh, I think as time has go gone on, things have gotten worse for every party that's potentially affected. So July of 2011, things were bad and there were lots of policy choices about, uh, in particular in the United States, about not getting more involved. Uh, and those choices were based on calculations about things not getting worse. But they have clearly gotten worse um, in, in every possible way. So how do you think about resolving this, this conflict in a way that, we're not, that, that all parties aren't worse off in 2016 and 2020? I, I, um 
I think the best way is a, is a gradual way, uh, or a gradualist, let's say, uh, uh, way, because I, I think everyone wants to achieve everything at once or not do anything at all. And I think this is the, f uh, this is the folly of the current uh, policy internationally. Uh, I, I think people should stop talking about the Damascus uh, you know, uh, uh, resolution, a resolution that uh, actually uh, you know, uh, resolved the conflict in Damascus, whether the opposition will, will be uh, in government or not. Uh, I think that's beyond us, and that's not to, like, you don't neglect that, you keep it in the mind and you try to push for it. But uh, I think you need to, uh, to, uh, to kind of focus on the dynamics on the ground. I think you need to, uh, I, and I will give an example uh, why that's effective. Uh, you need to focus on uh, creating a balance on the ground that forces the regime to not uh, accept the, the removal of Bashar al-Assad, but to accept some sort of a reality, like a, you know, a facts on the ground. Uh, recently, we, we saw a, a, a very interesting truce between uh, the rebels, including jihadists, Al-Qaeda included, for example, uh, and uh, the Syrian regime in uh, around 13 towns around Syria, in the south and uh, in the north, uh, including Zabadani near the, uh, the Lebanese border and uh, Fua uh, near the Turkish border. Uh, now, the truce was mediated by Iran. And uh, part of the truce was for the Assad regime to stop flying helicopters and warplanes above these towns, which is a remarkable uh, concession for the regime to make. Why did the regime accept that? Why did the Iranians uh, accept that? It's because the, the force that controlled these areas, which is Jaysh al-Fatah, or the Army of Conquest, had been effective. It led a series of uh, gains against the Assad regime. It, for, uh, it got the uh, rebels to reach the heartlands of the Assad regime in Hama and in, uh, in Aleppo and uh, Latakia. Um, and uh, that, that is, a, that's a, a, I think, a model that everyone should be thinking about, uh, which is basically how to get the rebels strong enough so they can change, uh, they, they create peace uh, locally, provisionally, rather than think about what, what happens in, uh, in Damascus. And the fact that the Iranians accepted that, and the, the truce in theory still holds, no one announced that it, uh, it, uh, it ends, you know, that, that, that's a remarkable uh, I can, uh, thing to think about. So that's, those are truces that are sort of ho holding measures, but do you have any thoughts sort of on the broader resolution of how do we get to an outcome where the war is resolved. The, the war... Uh, Even if it takes a while. You, you, uh, like I said, gradual, as in, um, probably I didn't continue the, the point, is basically to kind of de-escalate the conflict somehow by getting these truces to work out, but also mm -hmm. to um, uh, get the uh, Russians and the Iranians somehow to also de-escalate. De uh, you need to uh, get a uh, force, a Sunni rebel force, not in a sectarian sense, but in a, like a demographic sense, a Sunni force that is acceptable by the local po population to mm -hmm. become so strong, formidable, uh, that it fights both the Assad regime and ISIS. And, and I, I, I think the best uh, location for that is a, t uh, is, is a group in Aleppo and Idlib in the north. Jay Shalfat, Jabir al right? A similar one, but no, it, it doesn't have to be uh, you know, these two groups. Ahrar Sham, uh, I suspect that they are genuinely moving towards moderation. I think they're, they're just doing uh, tactical moves. Uh, advised by their backers, regional backers. I don't think there's a genuine mo move towards moder moderation, uh, but there is slightly, not in the sense that they presented, but like, uh, uh, you know, uh, but there, there are, there are uh, 
there's still time to do something uh, with the Free Syrian Army. And uh, I think also a perfect example is re recently when the Russian intervention started in Syria, the Free Syrian Army uh, destroyed uh, uh, around 20 tanks. And everyone in, the, uh, in Syria, including Islamists, were, were saying uh, good for the FSA. This is great. This is our, our hope and so on. So there, there's a chance to revive that uh, model, but no one is helping them. So uh, you know, uh, the, uh, you know, the Atlantic Council did a recent thing, uh, a recent report, uh, Faisal, uh, I think, uh, did it, uh, which is that uh, you need to focus on competition and how to get the rebel, the Free Syrian Army, to compete with the jihadists, not to destroy them, to fight them, because fighting them will be counter uh, counterproductive. You need to uh, get them to compete with them, you know, these uh, brands. Okay, so we have a year and a half uh, remaining in this administration. I think the most likely course of action we're going to see is stay the course. Okay, I don't think that's going to be a little bit less than that. We're not going to see any major changes in the in the current approach. Um, the right thing to do, once again, less likely, is to achieve a, f a set of first downs to get the next president at the red zone, right? And I think that would be the right thing to do, but is the less uh, um, is the most is the more politically risky uh, approach. Uh, that means everything that Hassan was just mentioning, really getting serious, getting on the right track as far as building a credible, uh, conventional, uh, and strong uh, Syrian opposition force, uh, uh, helping as much as you can diplomatically, uh, Prime Minister Abadi with the efforts that he has laid out already. There's a lot of matchy-matchy between what the president is saying on Iraq and what the prime minister is saying. All you have to do is just a commitment to actually implementing what they're talking about. This sounds like, you know, but this time with feeling, right? Like, it's, I mean, it's sort of, but we'll do more. I don't know that that's. I said the next year is we're going to see very few changes, frankly. That's the most realistic. But that's a, distinct, uh, that's a different assessment. answer from asking what could be done or should be done, right? I mean, I don't that's think. That's for the next administration. That's my opinion. We also have to recognize the constraints uh, the, on the to ground. Stick with your football analogy. That's quite a punt, you know. That's <laughs> in, in both in both Iraq and Syria, I think the momentum uh, is behind us in a lot of ways uh, against ISIS. Uh, in Iraq, for example, I think the uh, the, uh, the, uh, the the Shia forces and the Kurdish forces, which were very effective and very important in containing ISIS in Iraq, uh, have reached a point where. They no longer fight in their areas, so they're less interested in fighting ISIS, and they're exhausted. They're, uh, they're, they're tired, uh, uh, but also not interested. Uh, so um, the, the you know the idea that they will fight in Fallujah or Ramadi or Haditha or uh, in Mosul is far-fetched. You can't you can't imagine that, uh, and and uh, and I think that uh, trend. Again, started uh, after Tikrit, when, you know, uh, during the Battle of Tikrit, if you remember, 30,000, 35,000 uh, even, uh, forces uh, moved into Tikrit to take to, uh, Tikrit, and thousands of them were killed. Uh, and finally, ISIS only lost 1,000 fighters, and, um, uh, you know, now Tikrit is uh, uh, mostly destroyed. Uh, lots of people went back, yes, uh, to, their, uh, to their areas, but it's not a model that Neither the, the Sunnis think, like uh, people in Mosul, they would say, I'm, 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 you know, I wouldn't support such a thing because I, I would rather uh, keep my home uh, intact rather than get it destroyed by some uh, airstrikes. And, uh, you know, for the Shia also to say, why do you have to go and fight in Sunni areas? So I think that the momentum in a lot of ways, uh, and I mentioned only that way, uh, is behind us.
And that's why I say ISIS will stay with us for a long time. I mean, I think that one piece to, to look at here, you know, from a very craven, narrow US national interest, you know, great game, real politique perspective, I mean, is to watch the Russians get bogged down and, you know, see what happens as they work through the, their own third party counterinsurgency campaign, right? They're backing a weak state actor, not coming in from a position of strength. They've got, you know, three or four different coalitions of opposing forces to, to deal with. And they're, you know, stuck in Latakia, right? They don't have, they have very little territory to control themselves. That would be potentially an appealing policy if not for the utter human carnage that that will absolutely result in, right? And so, you know, I think, you know, Jeremy Shapiro from Brookings talked about this, you know, last week, you know, we have avoided for the most part treating the symptoms, preferring instead some sort of holistic treatment of the underlying cause, but doing very little while we wait for it all to work all, all at once. Um, you know, there might be some palliative care in terms of a much more robust humanitarian, in particular refugee response that, that needs to get addressed that would at least alleviate some of those pressures, not just on our, on our NATO allies, uh, but also our, more importantly, our regional allies, Tur Turkey and Jordan, um, but provide some space to let this other great game piece play out a bit longer. I think that's a disastrous approach. I don't want to test the proposition that the Russians might actually succeed, A, and B, that solidifies the perception that we don't have any, we don't have any resolve in the Middle East and the region, regional partners are closely so we should, watching what, what should we, we do. do, Bilal? I don't think we should be watching what the Russians doing and hoping that they might I heard achieve. that part, but so what should we do? I think in Syria we need big ticket items that this administration is not willing to do. I'm talking about diplomacy, what the, we discussed yesterday as far as the president holding a major summit with the key, key players with vested interest in the region. That's the Turks, the Saudis, the Jordanians. For to do what? Lebanese. For to resolve the civil war? To get the process started as far as the political process, what needs to be done? We spent a long time yesterday talking about how that process is the Geneva process and was signed well, fine, that's the three framework. years ago. That's right? the framework, but actually they need to sit down and start talking. Now let's open it up to the audience and um, look for additional discussions. Way in the back there, I think, take as the first question. Thank you so much, Pam Dawkins with Voice of America. And I have two questions. Um, first of all, for Hassan, in your opening statements, you indicated that you believe the air campaign is ineffective. Can you talk a little about what you believe would be the alternative? Would it be ground forces uh, and, and expansion of ground forces? And then secondly, what, um, in your view, would be the impact of a, a significant influx of Iranian troops in Syria? And then for Belial, um, you, you've indicated that the administration's current position, especially regarding Syria, is, is sort of timid. Um, why do you believe that the current administration um, is not willing to wade deeper into the conflict, um, in particular in Syria? So first question on military uh, operational effectiveness. Any takers? Yeah. That's where okay. Hassan was. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, no, I, you know, don't get me wrong. I think the airstrikes um, uh, were inevitable, and they have to be there. Uh, otherwise, ISIS would have um, gone to Erbil and maybe to Baghdad and, and, and further. So the airstrikes were uh, have been effective in containing ISIS uh, ter territory, like you know, militarily. Uh, so it, uh, it has to think twice before going uh, somewhere. Uh, I, th I think the alternative should be a combination of airstrikes and ground forces, but not. Nobody is asking for American uh, ground forces or uh, troops on, uh, like uh, boots on the ground. 
Uh, and I, I think President Obama uh, said that before. He said, uh, we have found that um, the best uh, way forward is to uh, have uh, ground forces on the ground, like strikers on the ground, and uh, uh, supported by their, basically by the air, uh, air campaign. And that has been uh, effective in multiple areas, in Kobani, although uh, the battle in Kobani took four months, uh, but it finally drove ISIS out of uh, Kobani. Uh, and it has been effective in Tel Abyad, uh, near uh, Kobani. And it has been, of, of course, uh, in Iraq, in, uh, like I said, in mixed uh, sectarian areas like Diyala and Sinjar and, and so on. Uh, so I think you know that's uh, I think that's the best way uh, militarily. Great, and then Bilal, I think you can keep this answer short because I think we've discussed this quite a bit in this room. And I think it starts with the commander in chief. I think he's <coughs> um, he's excessively cautious on Syria, and he's setting the tone as far as the Syria policy and the preferences that he has uh, uh, are quite dominant. Frankly, uh, there's also a political risk for greater involvement, so he's very aware of that. Uh, the way his cabinet is perceiving the challenges is not the same way we are. Uh, they see him as far more significant. And there's a sense, at least talking to some of the folks who are, uh, uh, who do have responsibilities uh, for Syria, that this is a country that's at least in its current shape unfixable. So that's, um, that's what I understand from it. Great. We have two questions in the second row here. We'll take um, first the gentleman. Regarding what Mr. Hassan If you can identify said, yourself, I know who you are, but not everybody does. Khairallah, <laughs> uh, Regarding what Mr. Hassan said about uh, the ceasefire in Syria, I believe that this, uh, this ceasefire was not mediated by, uh, by Iran. It was imposed by Iran for very specific reasons. Iranians are uh, uh, interested in a sectarian exchange in Syria between Shias and Sunnis. I think this, is, this shows that Iran has its own uh, project in Syria. Here, it's very important to see that this project differs a little bit from what the Soviets, these, the Russians, <laughs> really want in Syria. This, this is uh, only a point that I wanted to clarify. Great, so the, I think for those who couldn't hear, the point was that the uh, ceasefire was imposed by Iran the ceasefire that Hassan uh, discussed. And so, Hassan, I don't know if you have any yeah, response the, to that. The, the ceasefire was uh, mediated by both Turkey and Iran. Um, and both of them were involved. And they got, at some point, they involved the UN as well. Uh, the UN was kind of, uh, um, was supposed to oversee the implementation of, uh, of the plan. Now, you're, you're right. I think one of the worrying aspects of the, of the, of the truce was the demographic transfer because uh, there was a plan to transfer, to get Sunnis out of uh, Zabadani near the Lebanese border and get some of the Shia out of uh, Fua uh, in, in uh, northern Syria. Uh, and uh, the UN branch or mission in Syria objected to that, uh, still has reservations about that, uh, that part. Um, but uh, I think it's not a, a substantial transfer. It was just uh, like older men and women and uh, not fighters, for example, not like uh, military-aged uh, people. And uh, it's limited in, in numbers. That's why the uh, Jesh al-Fatih agreed to it. Uh, Jesh al-Fatih, uh, uh, you know, I spoke to some of them, uh, and they said they were excited about the, the outcome. They thought it's actually uh, favorable to them. And that's why I thought it's a remarkable uh, uh, kind of uh, development. Interesting. I understand Great. your point of view, but I thought about the whole idea about this sect sectarian dimension 
I think this that, is what yeah, I want to That's one of the worrying uh, things about uh, Iranian involvement in, in Syria, probably uh, in, a, in opposition to the Iranian, uh, sorry, to the Russian uh, approach. Not that they, they have tensions or differences, but uh, I think the Iranians would not mind um, a regime that it's not a, a state, it's, it's a militia, a militia, like it's a sort of like a militia that, you know, at, as long as they have a, a path from Iran to Iraq to Syria and to Lebanon, they're, they're good. And uh, if, if the civil war continues, I think that's also good. They don't want a process that where the Saudis and everyone start to have uh, influence uh, and so on. They, they're willing to, uh, you know, uh, kind of give up some territory, uh, move the demographics around so they can have like more, uh, more solid uh, roots. So that's the worrying thing about Iran. I don't think uh, Iran has good intentions in that sense. Barbara Slavin. Yeah, thanks. Barbara Slavin from the Atlantic Council. Uh, Bilal, you revealed a little bit of what we talked about yesterday in, in the game. I wonder if you could, could talk about some of the other <coughs> conclusions that, that we came to, uh, even if you think it's unrealistic that the Obama administration would, would go for it. For example, the notion of a, of a safe zone. Uh, does the Russian entrance into the war, as some analysts have written, mean that we, it's not possible to have that kind of zone uh, on the border between Syria and, and, and Turkey? Does the fact that the, Turk, uh, the Turkish government is so upset about US support for the PYD mean that that that's no longer uh, a real project. And also, if you could just tell me what happens to this study. Do you brief the government? What, what do you do with this? Thanks. I'll answer the second part. Maybe I'll defer to Erin, because she was leading uh, one of the blue teams. Uh, I'll, I'm going to be writing the analysis, uh, and uh, it should be up sometime next week. But yes, we will have a chance to uh, brief um, uh, whoever wants to hear, basically, from uh, from the government. And I think that there was interest in the game because we had some folks from the government participating yesterday, uh, including former officials. Um, and so as soon as I have a copy of it, I'm sure I will share it with you, but it should be up on the website. Uh, did you want to elaborate on safe sure. zones? And, well, Barbara uh, was in my group, so she knows our discussion on, on, on safe zones, um, which we, you know, we had, I think, a fairly lengthy conversation. You know, one is um, sort of a question more generally of a, of a no-fly zone and if or how that might be enforced. Um, I'm very much of the opinion that the Russian participation complicates that immensely. Um, question of safe zone versus enclave, um, whether whichever language you want to use, one being more of, of strictly humanitarian interest, another that might be more uh, political military consolidation of um, opposition forces, um, all of that would probably be you know, it's an interesting idea potentially to do something in the South, but the Jordanians have basically opposed that for, for many years now. Um, some sort of buffer zone or safe zone um, in what are now essentially Kurdish-dominated areas, PYD, uh, YPG areas uh, along the northern border, um, and possibly some rump area of, of northern Aleppo. Um, and I think that that's, uh, you know, remains, um, from what I understand from the conversations yesterday and elsewhere, sort of an active topic of discussion at what I might call worker bee levels within the government. Um, the administration at the highest levels um, does not seem to be particularly energized, but that doesn't mean it's not being continually evaluated and, and addressed. I, I think this Turkish question is, uh, you know, sort of one of the real keys and our uh, policies vis-a-vis -vis the Syrian and Iraqi Kurds and sort of the broader uh, Turkish agenda and, and interests are, are, are quite complicated. Um, so I'm fairly ambivalent myself on the question of, of sort of safe zones. I, it, there's a 
great humanitarian impulse there, but I actually don't know that it, A, protects people all that well, and B, uh, it's sort of another concession from, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of political will that has to get brought there, and I don't know who all has an interest in allowing that to happen. Interesting. And I'll step out of moderator role, too, and say one of the key takeaways that at least I personally took from the game was if the U.S. and its partners and allies want to play a role, then they, then they need more leverage. If they want to move the dipl diplomatic process um, you know, to any tangible degree forward in a way that moves toward a sustainable solution, leverage is required, and that leverage means a sig more significant military investment. There's just no way around it. You need to change the conditions on the ground in order to provide the right incentives for Assad and his uh, allies to uh, come to the table in a meaningful way. And what that looks like, you can talk about different approaches at the operational and tactical levels, but it's, it's really a bottom line uh, sort of minimum requirement for uh, having any meaningful uh, process go forward. The Russian role, in particular, will only respond to that additional leverage. Absent that, then uh, the, uh, there doesn't strike me as, as there being very many um, substantial incentives for any of the current parties to change their positions or their activities. Maybe just a quick word about the no-fly zone. Uh, I think if a serious <clears throat> diplomatic uh, process would uh, kickstart, um, the, the, the concept of a no-fly zone would be almost redundant uh, because it would be with the consultation, cooperation, coordination, whatever word you want to use, with the Russians. Nobody's talking about a no-fly zone in the current circumstances where you can uh, risk uh, a dogfight with the, with the Russian Air Force. So um, I disagree, but let's move on. <laughs> I have two questions, one from the gentleman in the second row and then one in the first row, and then I'll broaden as we, as we uh, move towards the end of the session. Thank you, um, Hamid Yunus from Gallup. I just wanted to ask the panel, but particularly I think Hassan, somebody who's not based in Washington, um, what do you say to the statement that I hear a lot in this city now, which is this is a thousand year old sectarian war and there really is no uh, US Western policy that will end this war. Not a view I personally hold, but definitely something that a lot of us are hearing by some here in Washington. I see Bilal. I think groups like ISIS um, have a narrow audience, and this is we have to keep in mind. All uh, you know, this is something that we have to keep in mind. It has a narrow uh, audience, but it's a it's a narrow you know custom base, like customer base. As in, like if they join uh, this brand or they buy this brand, then they're it's profitable in the long term. Um, that's why it's not a really a sectarian like a sectarian uh, fight. It's easy, it's easy, like even people who buy into the sectarian narrative. It's easy to reverse that when something happens and they say, oh, we're, you know, we're Syrians or we're Iraqis. Uh, and we've seen evidence of that. It's not, the, it's not just a speculation. Like uh, the recent protests in Baghdad and southern Iraq, uh, they were anti-sectarian. No one asked them that. Uh, the Sunnis were not involved in the protest. It was a, a, a Shia-based um, kind of uh, protest movement. And they spoke out against sectarianism because they thought uh, Iran is, is exploiting the situation in, uh, in Iraq, and there, there were some slogans, there were anti-Iran slogans, and which is, you know, uh, I think amazing uh, that, that, that we heard that, and uh, pro, um, like, like nationalist uh, voices. So I think the sectarian um, 
you know, the sectarian dynamic is something that uh, groups like ISIS and Jabhat al-Nusra tap into. It's, uh, it's useful and it will continue to be there. And I think it's growing. We've seen, uh, you know, uh, when Putin, for example, uh, sorry, when uh, the Russians uh, intervened in Syria, there were a lot of pro-Putin uh, uh, slogans in Iraq because they thought the Americans were not serious about the fight against ISIS. The Russians will be. And uh, when the, Saudi, uh, the Saudis, for example, uh, intervened in Yemen, there were a lot of like, senti like um, kind of uh, uh, positive sentiments to, uh, uh, towards this, uh, the Saudis and uh, uh, anti-ISIS sentiments uh, in the region because people thought like this is finally a, a country, a Sunni country, uh, doing something against uh, Shia or you know uh, Shia allies in the region. The argument. So don't. You know, there's a great deal of historical and contemporary evidence to cross-cut that. Not the least of which is, you know, a, a dozen different subnational alliances going on across across the the region, and that a, the primary target of ISIS for the most part has been fellow Sunnis, right? They have not killed a great deal of Shia to to my to my count. So, um, you know, that's those but are. It's a, but it's an essential uh, part of uh, even if ISIS killing Sunnis. It, uh, it's killing them as a tactical thing because these Sunnis oppose the Sunni uh, project of ISIS. I don't disagree that ISIS has a fundamentally sectarian, you know, millenarian yeah. uh, agenda. That's distinct yeah. from saying that our policies are incapable of addressing such, yeah. such, a, yeah. such a thing. A question from the front row. Thank you very much, Alexander Kravitz. Uh, to pick up on, on your comment, Mr. Hassan, about the fatigue, shall we say, of the, you know, the, the Iraqi army to fight uh, the, 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 in the ship, uh, Popular mobilization forces. Last year, the Iraqi Kurds, the Peshmerga, you know, were the one were uh, were considered the ones that could take the fight. You know, they were sort of uh, the, the ones that could fight ISIS, and indeed, they you know they they held them and they took over Kirkuk. So I wonder. I haven't really heard any any uh, discussion here about the Iraqi Kurds, and I wonder if you could comment on the current crisis there. Um, you know, President Barzani's term expired August 19th. Uh, you know, we're two months in and there's no resolution. The Iraqi, the um, Kurdish parliament president was stopped from going to the capital. I mean, there, there's obviously, you know, a serious political crisis. And I'm wondering how you think this might affect, uh, you know, the, the Peshmerga role against ISIS. Uh, well, for, uh, based on my conversations with senior American, you know, officials involved in the fight against ISIS, uh, I think they they think that the uh, uh, the Kurds are uh, indispensable in the fight against ISIS. They've proven to be uh, really effective, really motivated to fight ISIS. Uh, they are unlike other groups. They think that they've suffered so much, so many massacres and atrocities over the years that they cannot just give up. Uh, so they were, uh, also they have a project of like expansion uh, project in Syria, uh, as well as in Iraq, like on a on a much lesser uh, degree. Uh, but then we have uh, again to recognize the constraints. Uh, I think within uh, Kurdistan, uh, the Iraqi Kurdistan, there are a lot of uh, political uh, kind of battles that uh, President Barzani and the Peshmerga um, have to deal with. Uh, Peshmerga in the sense that. Uh, the, the Yazidis uh, at some point felt that there was not a serious push to actually protect them until the Americans came. Um, so there the, was that kind of tension. Uh, it's not major, but uh, uh, it's just an example of the kind of fault lines uh, within Kurdistan. And uh, uh, of course, 
also when it comes to the uh, the Turkey and uh, uh, the Turkish um, uh, position on on the um, uh, the involvement of Kurds against against ISIS. Uh, there have been like a tug of war between America, uh, the United States and, and Turkey over the uh, nature of the role uh, played by the Kurds. Uh, so I think you know the, we have to consider all these things. So it's not just the Kurds are motivated to fight ISIS; they are. But what about the other other problems, internal and external? Because in Syria, for example, uh, the Kurds cannot go uh, to uh, Raqqa without the involvement and the leadership of Sunni forces. Uh, but uh, some people try to get them to fight in Raqqa because they're willing to fight in Raqqa. Uh, uh, people underestimate the deep tensions between the tribes and Sunnis and Arabs, you know, like in, uh, in northern Syria, and the Kurds. Uh, and that is something to uh, keep in mind. Indispensable partner, the U.S. support has been pretty stingy, uh, but I understand the Turkish concern. We have five minutes left. We're going to start taking very short questions and collecting them. So those who have uh, real succinct questions, please ask. Uh, one from the second row, one from the third. We'll take them both, and then I'll continue. <clears throat> Hi, I'm Nisaba. I'm a senior resident fellow here at the Atlantic Council. Um, you talked, Hassan, about governance. How would you compare ISIS's governance to Jabhat al-Nusra and to AQI back in the day? Uh, and how has it been impacted both by airstrikes and by the Iraqi government's uh, stopping of salaries, which seems to have really undermined economic activity, particularly in Mosul? And on the tribal front, how has ISIS been so successful in executing pretty draconian punishments against tribally affiliated people in its territory, particularly against things like corruption, uh, whilst also avoiding revenge? Great, thank you. And then the question from the third row. <clears throat> Hi, Gary Sargent. I'm a retired um, army officer. Um, spent some time in Lebanon, and I don't hear a lot about Lebanon, and um, increased U.S. military aid and some other things. If somebody could just add peace on how <laughs> ISIS is impacting Lebanon, right. what do you see with the future? Thanks because very much. So the first two questions on governance and, and uh, how, the, how the tribes are handling this. Okay. So uh, in, in comparison to uh, Nusra, uh, simply put, uh, Nusra focuses on women hearts and minds. Uh, ISIS is always critical of this approach. Uh, they think that this is a, an idealization or like a kind of a, a fetish in the kind of communal, um, uh, you know, or winning hearts and mind, minds. Uh, it, it has been very critical. Uh, actually, Abu Muhammad al-Adnani just gave a, a statement and he focused on that. He said, uh, uh, you know, uh, Jabhat al approach is, is not effective and we will go after everyone regardless of uh, whether they're going to be happy or not. Uh, in terms of salaries, and, uh, and this is, I think, one of the mistakes, uh, and bluntly uh, to say that, uh, I will say that bluntly, uh, one of the mistakes of the American pol uh, like government uh, is to ask the Iraqi government to stop paying salaries because, uh, you know, people depend, families, whole families, tens and probably thousands of families, depending on these salaries to sustain themselves. Where do they go uh, if uh, the salary is stopped? There is no plan. You, you know, like you uh, target these communities, it seems like, uh, like sanctions never work in the Middle East. Uh, they never worked with Iran, uh, or maybe they worked, I don't know, it depends on what, how you see it. Uh, they, they didn't work with uh, Saddam Hussein, and it will never, uh, won't uh, work with, uh, with ISIS. 
in, t in terms of tribes, uh, uh, ISIS is used, like I said, uh, two things, the intimidating, intimidation uh, uh, of tribes, and people think, will think a thousand times before they rebel against ISIS because uh, they've seen the fate of the Shaitat in Deir Zor or Al-Bun Al Nimr in uh, and Iraq, um, uh, and they don't want uh, they don't want uh, ISIS to be uh, to go after them because they know that ISIS stay. I mean, this is a, a good metric, I think, always when you see tribes uh, align with someone. That means that that faction is staying longer than other forces uh, because they they know that the Americans are not going to come to help them, and even if they come, they will leave soon. Uh, no one is going to stay uh, come and stay uh, there. So that's why they. The bet and gamble uh, uh, on ISIS. On the governance question, I think that there's also um, uh, Nostra's done a couple of interesting things. I would say one is to focus a lot on dispute resolution and judicial uh, or other kind of policing type type services, um, and that's that's very deliberate on on their part. It's it's less resource intensive, um, but also insinuates you into very clear day to day parts of people's lives. Uh, they've also done a lot to work next to local councils or provincial councils without jamming their hands firmly into it. Now, and that's a very clever way of maintain, making sure that folks in Idlib keep getting money from Western governments. Um, but it's also part of a broader, whether you want to call it hearts and minds, a phrase I wish I could burn for all eternity, um, or uh, a very clever campaign. Um, you know, to it's well, it's it's a it's a useless phrase. They're not doing it because they want people to like them. They're doing it because they think it's an effective way of maintaining political control, um, and it is. I think is the the short answer. Um, both of which are lessons learned by ISIS and and Nusra from AQI, which did relatively less of of all of these things. The, the word they use the, both uh, Jabhat al-Nusra and ISIS is Hadna Shabia. And I think the best way to translate it is a one in heart and mind. It doesn't like to incubate. Like <coughs> the, I think the literal translation is communal incubation or incubator. Hmm. Interesting. And then last word on Lebanon. Yeah, I mean, they created, a, a, I'd say, not a significant scare two, three years ago along the borders, but I think as well has been pretty effective And in addition to the Lebanese army countering that. Uh, but more importantly, I'd say that this is an organization that doesn't have a constituency in Lebanon. It's that simple. And that's the most important factor. Uh, no one rose up, whether it's in Tripoli or anywhere in the north, to support the organization, uh, even in its heyday, uh, when it was pretty prominent in uh, uh, places like Arsad and others. So I think Lebanon is, um, has bigger uh, uh, problems uh, that should be worried about, uh, honestly, than, uh, than ISIS at this point. Okay, well, I wish we had more time for questions, but we don't. Um, please join me in thanking our fantastic panelists and also the ISIS War Game team. <laughs>